1: Welcome to the
0: Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast,
1: go to com slash Jack. So let yourself listen um, in a meditative way, which is to say there's nothing you have to remember, no quiz at the end, um, no grades, it's more, let yourself listen. And if there's something that reminds you of a truth or of an understanding that you really already know in your heart, that's wonderful. And if it doesn't seem useful, just let it go by. And as I said, um, this is the beginning of a, a sabbatical time after 40 years of teaching for me about a year. And then I'll start again, when we have this wonderful new meditation and community hall that's being built now over there. Um, And uh, I asked Allison if she might start um, by reading a poem, and she'll read a poem, then I have some things, a bit of teaching to do. And then she'll read some more poems, and we'll do some kind of dialogue. And part of the spirit of the of this sabbatical is also to have time to do new creative things and so this is the beginning of it we'll see how it goes (laughs) thank you allison for coming um and um sure why don't you begin
2: thank you for having me and um yeah I, i know that every person in this room is doing tremendous work inside where it can't be seen so this poem is for you Uh, It's called Invisible Work, because no one could ever praise me enough, (laughs) because I don't mean these poems only, but the unseen, unbelievable effort it takes to live the life that goes on between them. I think all the time about invisible work, about the young mother on welfare I interviewed years ago who said, it's hard. You take him to the park, run rings around yourself to keep him safe, cut hot dogs into bite-sized pieces for dinner, and there's no one there to tell you what a good job you're doing, how you were patient and kind for the thousandth time, even though you had a headache. And I, who am used to feeling sorry for myself because I am lonely, when all the while, as the Chippewa poem says, I am being carried by great winds across the sky. Thoughts of the invisible work that stitches up the world day and night. The slow, unglamorous work of healing. The way worms in the garden tunnel ceaselessly so earth can breathe. While bees ransack this world into being. And owls and poets stalk shadows our loneliest labors under the moon. There are mothers for everything. And the sea is a mother too, whispering and whispering to us long after we have stopped listening. I stopped a moment and let myself lean against the blue shoulder of the air. The work of my heart is the work of the world's heart. There is no other art."
1: It's hard to follow that.
2: <laughs> great. Back to you, Jack. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>
1: Well, I wanna actually talk a little bit personally to start with tonight Um, and listening to that touches, maybe I can thread it into what I was gonna say. Um, In this sabbatical, I made time to begin to do other creative things and I've just come back from traveling. Was at a conference for hundreds of teachers, educators, who were bringing mindfulness and compassion and social and emotional learning into elementary schools and middle schools, and they realize in our conversation, which mindfulness is you know spreading now like I don't know Starbucks or something like that right? <laughs> <laughs> can I say <laughs> if only I got a little percentage I'd be really <laughs> but anyway um, but they knew it. they know that when you have these kids in the classroom and uh, you're trying to teach them math or. English and their parents are in the middle of a divorce, you know, or they can't pay the rent. Like your poem talks about that invisible work and cutting the hot dog up and no one to say, you know, you're holding it together for this child or that, um, you know, they're in the neighborhood where there's a lot of gangs and they're worried about their older brother who joined the gang. And how can they study math when they're full of the, um, fears and anxiety and, and trauma, really, that's part of their life at times, or they just watch some TV and see school shootings. Mm-hmm. And then they're supposed to come and be quiet at their desk and learn how to do a, you know, an essay. Um, and so the teachers were, are so receptive to the fact that in this culture, there are two kinds of needs. There's the outer need to develop economically and there's these wild growth of the internet and technology and nanotechnology and biotechnology and all the amazing science things that we have which haven't stopped continuing racism hasn't stopped continuing warfare hasn't stopped continuing environmental destruction and so the teachers as well as the other people i've been working with really understood that there's two kinds of education that have to be wed together, the education of the skills of the mind, but also the education of the heart for these kids, to hold them in the wise way to give them the skills of emotional regulation and empathy and compassion. How else do you become a good human being? And also how else do we do we transform the world that so calls for it at this moment? Mm -hmm. And being in Washington, I also was meeting with friends that, um, colleagues that I've been working with on the difficulties that are happening in Burma, because I was there earlier this mm-hmm. year and still quite involved with peacemaking and, and so forth. Um, and um, also friends who are involved in the peacemaking efforts, slow though they, they be, in Palestine and Israel, um, where I've got some connections and done some work. Um, and like the invisible work you talk about, Allison. Mm-hmm they carry the um, they carry the work of the heart sometimes without any recognition mm-hmm. you know what's in the news is the bombing in gaza and the rockets to israel and so forth and what you don't read about are the 200 groups of the bereaved mothers or the former combatants for peace or the 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 sulkita that's bringing palestinian and israeli teenagers to together every summer for five years in a row till they become friends and make a peace pact that will never hurt your family Mm. you know Mm. or i uh, um so in in washington i went to my favorite place there which was the lincoln memorial Mm. and you go in and you enter it and it says the first words in the top over his head is in this temple Mm. so it's really a sacred place and then written on the walls are his words speaking of the words of poetry, Um, you know, fervently we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills it, God wills it to continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of toil shall be sunk. And every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. So this was somebody speaking in this poetic voice of truth as well. Still, we must bind up the nation's wounds with malice toward none and charity toward all. He calls upon all to do what they may to achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and among nations. And I stood there and I wept, Mm -hmm. partly because of the, the moral leadership that the world also so needs. We need all the outer development, but somehow we also need the leadership of the heart. Mm -hmm. And I think it's partly the job of poets. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, As uh, William Carlos Williams says, you can't get the news from poetry, but men and women die miserably every day for lack of what is found there, Mm -hmm. which is really the voice of the soul somehow. Mm -hmm. So you enter the Lincoln Memorial. And there's a voice that's timeless that speaks a kind of truth or dharma that says this is really what matters to us as human beings. And when we come together and sit and meditate, it's not just to quiet ourselves with this kind of all the modern neuroscience that says you can be more effective and, you know, more attentive and all of that. But it's to see the lavender color in the sunset you know, and it's to taste that slice of tangerine. And here's Allison with these lines where she writes, sun drop drapes a buttered scarf across your face. Rose opens herself to your glance and rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world is nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. You know, what beautiful lines. And to meditate isn't just to kind of become a good meditator. But it's to quiet your mind and open your heart so that there's some sense of seeing this mystery of human incarnation and the the life we've been given. Suzuki Roshi was asked at one point by a psychiatrist, tell me about states of consciousness and higher consciousness. And he said, I don't know anything about higher consciousness. He said, I just try to teach my students how to hear the birds sing. Mm. So mindfulness, compassion training is really the training of the heart that we do Mm. together so we can live from a place Mm. of connectedness and presence with one another. Mm. Back to you, dear.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Um, Well, can I say that um, when listening to you speak, uh, the word that arises in me is alchemy. Uh, That is one thing I think poetry can do of... um, because we are in a world, an outer world that feels very dualistic. Sometimes, you know, like fighting and the wo- conflict. I Speaking for myself, can say there's always a lot of internal, you know, dualities and fights and conflicts. Um, and that one thing, poetry is like the ancient art of alchemy, where you apply the heat, you know, to those seemingly opposite things, and they um, melt and bubble up and. Create a synthesis, a new thing that's beautiful uh, and turning that lead into gold, that lead of conflict into something that could be beautiful. Um, But I guess uh, following up on the hearing the birds thing, I'll read um, Because These Failures Are My Job, um, which I don't know by heart. Um, And it's based on a beautiful poem by um, one of my favorite poets, Lucille Clifton, who said, the reason why I do it though I fail and fail at the giving of true names, is because I am Adam and his mother, and these failures are my job. (laughs) (laughs) That's her commentary on writing poetry. It could also apply to meditation, I think, very well. Um, This is called Because These Failures Are My Job. This morning, I failed to notice the pearl gray moment just before sunrise when everything lightens. Failed. Also, to find birdsong under the grinding of garbage trucks. And later, walking through woods to stop thinking, thinking for even five consecutive steps. Then there was the failure to name the exact shade of blue overhead. Not sapphire, not azure, not delft. To savor the soft squelch. Of pine needles underfoot later i found the fork raised halfway to my mouth while i was still chewing the last untasted bite and so it went until finally wading into sleep's thick undertow i felt myself drift from dream to dream forever failing to comprehend where i am falling from or to This blurred life with only moments caught in attention's loose sieve, tiny pearls fished out of oblivion's sea, laid out here as offering, or apology, or thank you.
1: When the Buddha first began to teach, at least as the mythology and the 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 old texts say his first words were a poem, mm. and so poetry threads its way through the dharma teachings. Dharma meaning a word of pointing us toward truth, the way things are. Um, after his enlightenment, he said, "O house builder, thou art seen at last. The ridgepole is shattered. The rafters are broken. O house builder of sorrow, thou art seen at last. No more." will you build this house of sorrow? Freed am I. And what he was talking about in the deepest way is the possibility for human beings to step out of the small house, the small sense of self, it's sometimes called the body of fear, in which we live and realize that we are part of this great mystery, not the small self, but part of something so much larger and glorious, being carried by great winds across the sky. And that no matter what moment you find yourself in, when you get caught and lost and upset and in conflict and angry and all those failures that you just named, that they're all very good at. I know you are. It's like that line from poet Ryokan, the Japanese favorite, beloved poet, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. (laughs) <laughs> that you see that, you see it, and then in the meditation, or in the mindfulness that grows from your meditation, there are those moments where you go, oh, caught in that, wasn't I? Boy, got into that one again with that person, or with my own mind, got all tangled up, or, or lost my sense of self. And then there's these miraculous moments, which is what the Buddha is expressing, the house builder of sorrow, of grasping of, of uh, conflict with the world falls away in those moments and you say, wow, I was really caught in that, wasn't I? You know, and how great it is, um, the three day rule or the three year rule or something. I was talking to somebody who had trouble with their parents and they have the 48 hour rule. They go back, but only for that much time or something, but you get something that comes into you. That's really difficult. And instead of immediately reacting, which is our kind of Mm. fight-flight-freeze, you give it a few days, Mm. you know, or in some cases for big things, it's a few years. Right. And then you go, wow, I really went through that, didn't I? Mm. And there's some bigger perspective that you realize this is human incarnation.
0: Mm.
1: And it is the way that it is with its 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And one of the teachings that I did also recently is exploring new things on the sabbatical. I worked with nurses and doctors um, in LA as part of the Inside LA. My beloved partner Trudy's Center Inside LA has a program um, for for caregivers of children. Um, And these are people who had been practicing in some cases now in this program for a while. And they said it made such a difference because they're in the neonatal ICU or in the children's hospital with children or other hospitals where they have children who are really sick. And they said, we can't talk about this to people ordinarily. How can we tell them that a third of the children that are given to us die? People don't know what to do when we say that. Uh, We can talk to each other. Or how do we hold the parents who are there with such longing and grief and hope, and sometimes the hope pans out, and sometimes with a loss. Um, And if we didn't have what you've given us of a practice of compassion and mindfulness and presence to regulate ourselves, it would be so hard to do this work. We each need that in our way, in our invisible work. We need to have a way of practice that helps us stabilize, bring a sense of presence, and a a, a kind of courage, a courage of the heart to say, as the Buddha sat under the tree of enlightenment, let me see all of this. Let me see the joys, and the sorrows, and the gain, and the loss, um, and the birth, and the death. They say, well, that's not supposed to happen. Well, how many here thinks you're not going to die? Raise your hands. I know what you're thinking, really. But in fact, it happens. It's part of this mystery of human incarnation. And you take your seed in meditation and allow yourself to see this dance of life with a compassionate heart and with a perspective that comes from this mindful clarity. So,
2: mm. Well, now I feel torn because I don't know whether to go in the death direction or, or to go toward fruit trees. <laughs> um, hmm. Fruit trees? Okay, I heard a whisper.
0: <laughs> fruit trees, fruit trees. <laughs> well,
2: I can say that of, of the things I've done in my life, one thing I know that I did that was good, Just, I just know that it was good, was I planted a couple of fruit trees. That's unequivocally good. No, ambi- you know, no, like, second-guessing, no Monday morning. Like, that was a good thing. Um,
1: Are they big? Did they grow up?
2: They did, with very little help from me. You know, I just stuck them <laughs> in the ground, and then, you know, I forgot about them. And now they're huge. Um, so we have a big, big tree in our front yard, and um, a, we live with trees, even though we live in the city. And this is called Everything I Know I Learned from Fruit Trees. It's short. Everything I know, I learned from fruit trees. How to stand naked and shivering in the rain. Then to endure being covered with blossoms, veiled and crowned, a gift neither deserved nor paid for. How not to question any of it. Ants marching in formation up and around my trunk, Itchy in their industry, single-minded in multiplicity. Tough old roots sunk deep into dry earth, sending out wild runners, voracious, and then green buds again and again to suffer. That swollen, eager tenderness, the painful bursting forth Never mind the years it took to ripen in the dark. Mm.
1: Thank you. Mm. I planted some willow trees in the middle of Woodacre when I moved here 25 years ago because the middle of the town had this sort of gravel place Mm. and it looked a little bit barren and I thought, this is our town. We should have some trees here. And now they are these great big willow trees. It's so cool.
2: It's crazy. And I didn't have to
1: do anything. Just kind of put them there. And
2: yeah. They did yeah. their thing. It's... Yeah.
1: No. <laughs> yeah. How, how wonderful. So, um, one of the other things to say, let's see where I'm going to go with this. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh, um, says that if you can see with the eyes of a poet, a poet is really someone who sees deeply. If you can see with the eyes of a poet, then in this single piece of paper is the tree that it was made from, growing on a forest ridge in British Columbia, perhaps. And the rain clouds that watered that tree and kept it going, just as you're talking about, and the soil underneath it, um, and the logger who cut it down, and the logger's wife who made lunch for him that morning and put it in his lunch pail, you know, and the oil driller somewhere in the Arctic who sent the oil for his truck, his logging truck. Um, And basically, if you can see deeply, which is to say, to see with the eyes of a poet, you see that any small part of the universe cannot be separated from the rest of it. You really understand interdependence. Um, And I think when we sit in meditation, again, it's not like a new grim duty that you have to do. All right, I go to the gym, I go to therapy, I, you know, um, I work out, you know, I try to do my diets better and things like that. Now I'll meditate and I'll make myself better like some self perfection thing doesn't work. You've tried that already. You know, self perfection is a losing game. It's not really about perfecting yourself. If anything, it's about perfecting your love to discover that you can sit and quiet your mind and open your heart and look and say, Where are we? This human incarnation so mysterious. And then what do I want to do with it? Mm -hmm. Um, And you sit and sometimes the sitting feels very peaceful and calm, you go, Oh, I got it, you know, And sometimes you sit and it's like you're sitting in the middle of a wild storm Mm. or the ocean of tears, which is the image of the Buddha, that your tears are as vast as the ocean, Mm. you know, but also your heart can be as wide as the sky. And you learn somehow to take your seat halfway between heaven and earth in this human life, not just to become a meditator, but in some way to really inhabit this mystery of your humanity. And it takes both presence and a certain kind of courage Mm. um, and also a lot of love. Mm. Because we tend to be so critical and self-judgmental. The Dalai Lama couldn't understand it when we asked him about self-hatred. He said, "Mm, self-hatred, what's that? Long time translating self-hatred back and forth. Finally, he looked up, it's like he'd never heard of it. He said, "Mm, but this is a mistake. Right. But there we are, you know, and you sit with all of it. You sit with shame and guilt and self-hatred and longing and judgment. Mm -hmm. And you say, oh, there's the judging mind. Thank you for your opinion. Mm -hmm. There's self-hatred. You (laughs) bow to that. Thank you. And you name what's present and you become the space of awareness and compassion that can say, yes, this is humanity. And now how will I live in the midst of all of that?
2: I have a poem have in response a poem? to that. Yeah,
0: do you have a poem? <laughs> funny you
2: should ask. Yeah, um, well, this is this is um, called "Pulling Weeds," which is you know pulling weeds in my backyard, but it's also kind of pulling up the metaphorical weeds that we do in meditation practice. You don't know this one because it isn't published yet. Uh
1: huh. Um, new poem. A
2: new one. Yeah, pulling weeds. You have not dug up the root. You've sweated, true. You've thinned ornamental grasses high as your waist till your pants bloomed with auburn fluff. You've clipped aggressive waving fronds of night-blooming jasmine hanging through the fence like girls at a rock concert. You've hacked back crowded purple sage, snapped at dry sticks, Yanked, prickly leaves and stems. But you know, in your heart of hearts, in the (laughs) darkest, smallest place inside, that you have not yet gotten to the root. The sadness of self-attack. The poison weed of knowing your own evil. You have not eradicated that merely cut back a few of its more pernicious tendrils, periodically, so a few roses might flourish here and there, your better angels, your finest intentions, all bud and stamen, all sticky sap. That's not what we're here to do, and you know it. Everything's compost, throw cut branches into the fire, Green smoke, white smoke, makes your eyes sting and your throat close. But still, you have not yet pulled yourself up by the root, the vanity, the sense of separate otherness, the stubborn, prickly, florid train wreck of ego personality. (laughs) (laughs) There's the castor bean tree, beautiful, toxic which someone planted years ago in a fit of reckless aesthetics, besotted with its mauve leaves, its Martian pink rubber ball spikes covering the inedible black seed. No matter how close to the ground you raise it, it returns like the witch in the fairy tale. And you know even your best qualities, a certain openness to truth, A generosity of spirit, those times when it is easy to be generous, go rank when they are allowed to squander themselves. And you know also that you are the witch in this tale, setting the spell, conjuring the thickets, as well as the prince hacking his way through brambles to love, that sleeping slattern. Nothing to do for centuries but dream of dismantling daisies with impunity, with dreamy abandon. And you know you are also the noxious, protective weeds, the protective barrier, hugging close to the chest all your precious wounds. Is it the better part of prudence that keeps you from ruining your back, tugging up something hell-bent on staying stuck in the earth? Are the flaws perhaps essential as dandelions to dirt? Would it be hubris to expect premature enlightenment or just plain cussedness? Or then again, could all this vaunted work be merely a ruse behind which the face of your true self lies hiding?
0: (sighs)
1: there's something in the poem about holy imperfection i would say you know because we get into a spiritual practice of one kind or another and in many of your cases several kinds Um, and then there's this notion somehow that if it works right no more weeds right? (laughs) exactly and no more conflict but it turns out That there was even conflict for the Buddha or Jesus. Somebody was calling me and having trouble with their family recently, really a lot of trouble, and I just reminded them, I said, you know, when Buddha and Jesus went home, they had trouble with their family too. (laughs) So just know that it's part of the game in some way. Um, But what we learn, the the depth of training the heart in presence and compassion um, and a spaciousness that says, this is human life, um, it's as if we step out of the spell of that judging mind and the small sense of self um, and relax and realize, oh, we can be aware of all of this. And there, there's a kind of an invitation to freedom. So there's that. You, I'm sure you know that Machado poem where he says, I am not I.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, um, And uh, let me see if I have it here, actually.
2: And oh, he that uh, walks beside me. I you. am
1: the one. Come on. Machado, where are you? I can't find it, but I remember some of the lines. Um, I'm the one who forgi- who forgives sweet when I hate. I'm the one who walks outdoors when I'm still inside. Um, I'm the one who will remain standing when I die. Mm-hmm. And it's this reminder that we get lost in our stories and you know, lost in our thoughts, as you said, and lost in our conflicts, and then in a moment, it's almost like popping the bubble. Um, We can wake up and remember, oh, here we are in this mysterious human life. And I took this so seriously, and I was judging that and afraid of that, and all those things are fine. Um, And who we are is so much bigger than that. We are the awareness itself.
0: Mm.
1: That's what was born in you. Before you were even in your mother's womb, there was some spirit that came in. Do you think you're this body? Come on. You know, you were that little one, and then it got bigger, and then it was a teenager, and it looked in the mirror. How do I look, right? You know how teenagers are, the young adult, and so forth, and then it starts losing its fur, and sagging, and all the things that it does. (laughs) Is that who you are? You know, I like to say you look in the mirror, um, and you notice that you've aged, Right? but the weird thing is you don't feel older Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because in that moment in that mysterious moment, you see, Oh, this is the body. And there it is. It's aging or it's drooping or it's losing its fur or whatever it's thing. My friend, Wes Lisker says the hard parts become soft and the soft parts become hard. That was sort of his comedic description of of our, our predicament. But somehow there's that moment in which you can look and see, Oh, here we are in this mystery, and that spaciousness of awareness, Mm -hmm. it allows you then to kind of touch into a moral compass. You know, when Gandhi took one day a week in silence, even in the midst of bringing down the entire British Empire, um, he said, I'm sorry, Thursday's my day off, you know, (laughs) I've got to go meditate. It was to quiet himself and listen to say, what is the most skillful thing that I can do that will serve all these people. Um, And when we quiet ourselves, it's as if we step back from our usual identity um, and all those self judgments and so forth. And then something else that's deeper and wiser and freer opens, opens in us. Um, And it takes both attention and compassion. Um, Maybe I'll ask you because I, I named compassion here. And we've learned over these years of teaching mindfulness practice how important it is to wed mindfulness with loving kindness or compassion. You can't really be aware unless there's some element of love in it. Otherwise the judgment comes in or the gaining comes in. But when the heart is tender and says, okay, here we are with this, um, all of a sudden that sense of freedom kind of restores itself.
2: Oh, I will read this with pleasure. This is called At the Corner Store. Um, I live in Oakland, and it seems that um, a lot of the corner stores are owned by Yemeni families, uh, at least in my neighborhood. Um, So this this poem is pretty self-explanatory. At the Corner Store. It was a new old Arab man behind the counter, skinny, brown, and eager, He greeted me like I was his prodigal daughter, as if we both came from the same world, somewhere warmer and more gracious than this foggy city. I was thirsty and alone, sick at heart, grief soiled, exiled from family through my own faulty temperament. And his face lit up like I was his lost sheep wandering home, Coming back to the freezer bins in front of the register, which were still and always filled with the same Star Heart ice cream sandwiches and cheap frozen greens. Back to the knobs of beef and packages of hot dogs in the butcher case, the dusty shelves strung with potato chips and corn chips, cases of beer, and immortal Jim Beam. (coughs) I shuffled to the register and bought my bottled water. And he returned my change beaming like I was a bright new bud on the just-busting-open cherry trees, like I was everything precious, struggling to grow. And he was blessing me as he handed me my change over the dirty counter with its plastic tub of red licorice whips, five for a quarter. This old man, who didn't speak English, beamed out love to me, the iron week after my mother's death. So that when I emerged from his store, my whole cockeyed life, wonderful failure, glowed like a sunset after rain. Frustrated city dogs were yelping in their yards, mad with passion behind their chain link fences. And in the driveway of a peeling paint house, a woman and a girl danced to contagious reggae. Praise Allah, the Buddha, Kuan Yin, Jesus, Mary, and jealous old Jehovah, for eyes, hands of the mother everywhere.
1: Thank you. And it can be that moment, that moment where somebody sees you, where you see yourself, where someone sees you with that kind of love. In India, it's called the glance of mercy. You go to see the teacher and you're you're a mess. Your life, you know, those lines that you write in the iron week after your mother's death or, you know, sick at heart, grief soiled, exiled from family through my own faulty temperament. That's a pretty <laughs> risky thing to say, right? There you are. And then somebody looks at you, the, uh, the, the glance of mercy, um, as my teacher Deepama, Ma, who's this wonderful woman in Calcutta did when I was going through a hard time. I went to visit her And she just loved me up so much that I became kind of drunk. And I said, oh, okay, it's all right now, it's fine. And I was like smiling for a few days um, because she wasn't interested in my story. Mm. She wasn't interested in the struggles or the gains or the losses. There was some way in which she just looked deeply and saw me and loved me in a way that we each need to find to, to love ourselves. This past week, um, Joshu Sasaki Roshi, uh, Rinzai Zen master in Los Angeles, the senior Rinzai Zen master in America, passed away mm. at age 107. <laughs> he was still teaching until age 105, mm. and if you read the accounts of it, he was really a remarkable and wonderful teacher, but he also got himself in trouble. I just call it the usual trouble, right? <laughs> with his misconduct with some of the women that were his students and various things like that um, and and made a bunch of suffering for it and I I don't want to apologize in any way for Um, but at the same time he was also a kind of remarkable being and he was still leading seshin or retreats at age 105 right so he would sit there and um, I learned some important things from him in my meditation Because when I went to study Rinzai Zen is the Zen where you answer koans, right? And it's a very formal practice in which the master gives you a koan like what is the sound of one hand clapping, you know, or um, how do you manifest Buddha in this particular circumstance or um, uh, bring me a pearl from the bottom of the ocean without getting wet. There's a koan for you and these are impossible questions. So when I first, when I went to the first session and you sit, unmoving, Alison mm-hmm. was saying she'd been at Tassahara and it was hard because she couldn't move. Mm-hmm. And you sit and, you know, if you move a little, the guy with the stick comes and says, sit up straight. You know, okay. So it's very like samurai tough. <clears throat> and then you go to see, in this particular tradition, you go to see the Zen master four times a day during Rohatsu, the, the winter session, five times a day. So he's got 50 people. He's seeing people. Two hundred people, two hundred times a day, and you go in, um, and you 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 bow, and he's sitting there, kind of like a mountain, right? Um, quite extraordinary. And then he looks at you after you bow, and he says, "Koan," and you say, "You know, bring me a pearl from the bottom of the ocean without getting wet." And he looks back and he recites the koan to you, bring me a pearl from the bottom of the ocean without getting wet, or give me, you know, the sound of one hand clapping. And at that moment, all rules are off, and you have to show him that you understand the koan. Well, when I started with him, I was sitting and, you know, I had my koan and I'm working on it. And I would go in and he was giving this talk about birth and death. And I thought, well, you know, maybe the koan means somehow you have to let go of birth and death. So I went in and I recited my koan. He asked it back. And I said, you know, let go. And he said, no good, and rang his bell. Go away. Okay. <laughs> I went in and I had a new answer for him. And I tried another one. he said, oh, are you teacher? Oh, two 2% <laughs> rang his bell. Okay. So next time, koan around birth and death. I throw myself into the air, I die, I lie there on the ground like I'm dead for a long time. Then I open my eyes and peek, he says, oh, not dead, no good. (laughs) By now I'm getting frustrated, I'm sitting there working on my phone, I gotta get an answer, right? I go in, another answer, he says, oh, too much ego. Rings the bell, sends me out. I started to get pissed. I said, all right, I'm doing my best. I'm really working on this koan. He doesn't even give me 3%. I mean, this is awful. And I get really angry with him. I'm sitting there, and the heat is right. I'll show him. So I walk in, I, and I think, he's his end master. He can handle it, right? So I walk in, and I was truly angry, but I'm also kind of playing with it. And he says, koan. And I look at him, and I say, fuck you, Roshi. <laughs> I put out the candle with my hand that's in front of him, and I pick up his bell, and I ring it myself. (laughs) I turn around to walk out, and as I get to the door, I hear the bell ringing again, and he says, no, not the answer. But what was great about it and what was, what was really wonderful about him is that he could sit there and you could weep tears, which I did. You could feel your rage. You could see the self-judgment. And he would say, yes, this too. All right, now continue to practice. He became the container. He became the Buddha that would say, all right, show me everything. Show me whatever is there. And that's not who you are. There's something bigger than that. So let me, let me see all that and then remember who you really are. So I'm going to give you an answer to a koan, which you're not allowed to do, but I'll tell you why in a second and then throw it back to Allison here. So we had a teachers conference that I've been hosting over the last 30 years, various teachers from around, sometimes with the Dalai Lama in India or so forth here. And at at this conference, there were a hundred or more Buddhist teachers and one um, Robert Aiken Roshi, uh American Zen master, was about to retire. He was, I don't know, about in his early 80s, and it was the last meeting he was going to come to. He was going to leave his community and retire. And so at the end of it, being, you know, a bit of a troublemaker as I am, I said, Roshi, before you retire, would you give us the answer to one koan? <laughs> and he said, okay. So everybody, like, paid attention, right? And he said, when I was in New York City in the 1950s, my first Zen teacher was Nyogen Sensaki, um, a very wonderful Zen master. He said and I would visit him as an apartment, and um, he gave me a koan as I was walking out the door from the first day of meeting with him. i had been studying Zen. On the, um, on the table just by the door was this beautiful Japanese bowl, and if you looked inside the bowl, there was this giant spiral um, from the center of it to the to the rim, and he picked up the bowl and turned it to me, and he said, "Does does the spiral go from the outside in, or does it go from the inside out?" That was the koan.
0: Hmm.
1: All right, so you got a moment now, right, before I give you the answer. To ask, well, you know, does do things go from the outside in or from the inside out? How do you answer this, right? Hmm. Zen master, oh. Two percent, no good, right? (laughs) So we all sat with it for a little bit. And then he was, again, he was in his 70s and he, he's kind of tall and lanky and he sort of slowly got himself up from where he was sitting um, and stood up and put his arms in the air like this as if he was the bull, And then he turned one way outside in and then he turned all the way around. I can't turn quite that far, and he made a circle from inside out. He became the bowl, and he demonstrated that we have inside going out and outside going in, and then he just bowed to us and sat back down. It was really elegant, it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. It was as if saying, you can embody all the parts of this world, from the inner to the outer, they're connected, and it's not an idea but it's actually something that you get in your hmm. being. Over to you.
2: Did <laughs> <laughs> you ever figure out the pearl one?
1: Did I figure out what the, per- the pearl? The pearl. The pearl one. one. I'm not allowed to tell you. Oh man. Sorry. Maybe um, when I retire, you can ask me. <laughs> <going. laughs> that
2: um, that reminds me. Of Here my...
1: it is. <laughs> right there. Oh, yeah. it's
2: beautiful. That it reminds me of my favorite joke. Would you like to hear it? Sure. How many surrealists does does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't know. A fish. <laughs> isn't that <quick>? great? <laughs> That's kind of like a come on, isn't it?
1: It is. It is.
2: It's a really good joke. I think it's the only one I then can. Then
1: we'll remember. talk about metaphor in a minute. Okay. I have a oh, ha- you, oh yeah, we not haven't yet. talked about not it? Yet.
2: okay. Um, well, I, you probably figured out the way that I write is I usually take something I did that was screwy and write about it that's often so i have a lot of material yeah. um, this is called because even the word obstacle is an obstacle i i like to swim i live in oakland all the pools are crowded it's very hard to get a lane that's all you need to know um so no well i can tell you it was this is the um 24-hour fitness which is kind of a misnomer because they really aren't open 24 hours and the pool is not open all the time and it's you know they close to clean anyway so I never was at that 24-hour fitness when I actually could get a lane. So this is because even the word obstacle is an obstacle. Try to love everything that gets in your way. The Chinese women in flowered bathing caps, murmuring together in Mandarin, doing leg exercises in your lane while you execute 36 furious laps, one for every item on your to-do list. The heavy-bellied man who goes thrashing through the water like a horse with a harpoon stuck in its side, (laughs) whose breathless tsunamis rock you from your course. Teachers all learn to be small and swim through obstacles like a minnow without grudges or memory. Dart towards your goal, sperm to egg. Thinking obstacle is another obstacle. Try to love the teenage girl idly lounging against the ladder, showing off her new tattoo, cette vie est la mienne, this life is mine, in thick blue-black letters on her ivory instep. Be glad she'll have that to look at all her life (laughs) and keep going, keep going. Swim by an uncle in the lane next to yours who is teaching his nephew how to hold his breath underwater even though kids aren't allowed at this hour. Someday, years from now, this boy who is kicking and flailing in the exact place you want to touch and turn will be a young man on a boat, at a wedding, raising his champagne glass and a toast when a huge wave hits, (laughs) washing everyone overboard. He'll come up coughing and spitting like he is now, but he'll come up like a cork, alive. So your moment of impatience must bow in service to a larger story. Because if something is in your way, it is going your way. The way of all beings towards darkness, towards light. Hmm.
1: (sighs) There's a, a line from the poet John Ashbery where he writes, um, there's the view that poetry should improve your life. I think people confuse it with the Salvation Army. <laughs> you know. But in fact, it does. Mm-hmm. You know, when you listen, Freud said that wherever I've gone, a poet has been there before me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then if you look in mm-hmm. all the mystical literature that awakens us, Rumi is, of course, the widest read poet in America now, thanks partly to Coleman Barks mm-hmm. and others, and, and Hafez and... and um, then you read mm. Kabir and Hanshan and Ryokan and um, Machado, and all mm. of a sudden you have these poems that are expressing the mystery and, and inviting you. The poems are like a gateway or a doorway that says, mm. Here, remember this life, remember who you really are. Mm. Um, look large, open your eyes, sense you know, this world. Um, so there are there are kind of linguistic. Um there are a linguistic keep a good metaphor for this one. Uh, Come um, on, poet. Um
2: uh, you're doing so good. Honey. I, know. I don't know. There,
1: yeah. There's something, there's some there's something in the language that invites you to taste the world in a different way when you use the use the word honey. Mm. Um and and you talked we talked a little in our conversation before about metaphor about mm-hmm. how In a way, poems shock you by getting you to see not just this woman or that man or that chair, but all the kinds of metaphors and similes or comparisons, and all of a sudden you see it in a fresh way. And if you look in the Buddhist texts, and this is one of many of these books, in the back there's an index of similes and metaphors. Oh, really? Because in these, the Buddha talks about your life, Um, did you never see the bubbles that floated along the Ganges River, and if you looked and peered closely, they existed for a time, but they were empty, and then they vanished and disappeared. And this is the way that human life is. Mm -hmm. You take appearance, you reflect the light of the sun, you float on the water, you have this experience of being human, and then it's gone like that. Emptiness. Form is not different than emptiness. Mm -hmm. So that's a metaphor, or it's filled with the mountain stream or the, the lotuses in a pond or, um, uh, the bitter seeds yielding bitter fruit, depending mm. what you plant, you know, or the elephant's footprint and it goes on and on and on, or the dewdrop from a lotus. Um, and the great Zen poet Ikkyu mm. wrote this and you listen to this because there's, there's a kind of truth. This is the kind of truth that those doctors and nurses who work with the children were so grateful that we had a place that we could talk about this and hold birth and death and not turn our eyes or our hearts away. So EQ writes, dew evaporates, which is an image that the Buddha used. Dew evaporates and all our world is dew. Everything is so tentative and fleeting dew evaporates and all this world is dew, so dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. Hmm. He wrote this after the death of his daughter. Hmm. So listen again. Dew evaporates and all this world is dew, so dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. Hmm. And he really wanted to express almost the inexpressible that we love so deeply. And at the same time, it's also ephemeral. Mm. It's, it's truly impermanent. And how do we take our seat with dignity and wisdom in a world that can change like that? Which is another gift that comes from the depths of your meditation practice. Metaphor. Mm. Mm. All right, something to change the tone. A little bit Um, a young girl seven years old went to her mother and asked um, where did human beings come from mama I mean how how did we get here and her mother said well um, God made the Garden of Eden and put Adam and Eve there and then they had children and grandchildren and eventually all the people all the way down to making you the little girl was happy. She went to talk to her father and said, Daddy, where do people come from? You know, I asked Mama, where do, where do we come from as human beings? And he said, well, the world, you know, cooled from the stars of 4.3 billion years ago, and the oceans came in, and then life started, and eventually the fish got legs and crawled out of the ocean, became reptiles, and then mammals grew, over evolution, and then there were, um, bipeds, apes, and monkeys, and finally they evolved half a million, a million years ago, into human beings, and that's where you came from. So she went back to her mom, and she said, Mom, you told me this, you know, whole thing about Adam and Eve, and so forth, and, but I'm confused, because Daddy talked to me about, you know, evolution, and monkeys, and so forth, and I don't know what to think. And she looked back and she said, "Well, um, I told you about my part of the family, and Daddy told you about his part." <laughs> Good.
0: <laughs> Good.
1: But you, I mean, there's so much power in an image.
2: Yeah, there there is, and. Um, what do you do after that what do you do after that yeah (laughs) i had something but i think think metaphor happens um sometimes at that place again of failure where you can't express what you were saying you can't express it our, our rational mind takes us so far and then there's something more to be expressed but we don't we can't say it in that regular language that we use every day, the, the English that we're speaking now. So then we have to make a leap into metaphor, into poetry in order to express that thing that's just beyond the edge of, you know, past, it's not past the salt and it's not, this is how you get to my house, take a left, take a right. It's it's a little beyond that and beyond that and then, then we're forced into song and poetry and movement and gesture because you know, and it's like that koan, you know, you, you're, you're forced into poetry, really, to answer a koan. Um, you can't answer it straight.
1: Words are things, says Lord Byron, and a small drop of ink falling like dew upon a thought produces that which makes thousands, perhaps millions, see in a new way. Yeah. Mm. The image um, in the Buddhist teachings it is the finger pointing to the moon, and that is a teacher or a poet. That the mm-hmm. skillful means of teaching is is to say, "Look, there's the full moon, which was last night or the night before, whatever mm-hmm. it was." Um, and people get confused and they look at the finger who's pointing, and you know what's their background and what do they know, and so forth. And the whole point is to have the poem or the teaching. Mm-hmm point you back to the moon, the, right. the light that's always there, that luminosity, right. um, and all the rest of it is just a, um, an invitation to that somehow.
2: That's what's so weird about poems. They're made out of words, which we all have a lot of, but yet um, the words kind of fall away like the scaffolding. It's, they're just, the words are just a scaffolding to get you to a feeling, I think, that's, that's beyond words. But you need the scaffolding.
1: So here's a poem from I have a collection of some poems from from young kids. This is an eight year old, mm. um, um, and it's really pith Buddhist teachings. This is like the Four Noble Truths, or um, it's really essential Dharma teachings. Mm. Called uh, it goes like this: I want to tell the fish, eat only the bait, not the hook. When you eat the bait, start from its edge and slowly gnaw bit by bit. Never ever gobble it in one go. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a lot of wisdom in that, little kids. And here we are, you know, we do get caught in ways. And that's part of also, it's the obstacle becoming the path. And that somehow in it, we need compassion and that kind of love that you read in the corner store poem to be reminded of here we are being human. And then the heart softens and we open up again and realize, ah, here we are, you know, being human in this mysterious way. And there is a kind of freedom that's available um, no matter what. Um, we're getting near the end. Mm-hmm.
2: Would you like me to read consider the generosity of the, the one-year-old?
1: Uh, That would be beautiful. And then I have a few things to say and we'll call it a night. Okay. Sit for a
2: moment. Consider the generosity of the one-year-old who has no words to exchange with you yet and instead offers up her favorite drooled-on blanket, her green rhinoceros as big as she is, her cloth doll with the long blonde pigtails, Her battered cardboard books swung open on their soggy pages. If you were outdoors, she would hand you a dead beetle, a fistful of grass, a pebble, by way of introduction or just because. And if a moment later she wants it back, it's for the joy of the game that makes of every simple object an offering. This is me. Here is who I am. Oh. In the same way, sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face. Rose opens herself to your glance, and rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. While you worry over matters of finance, of relationship important issues related to getting and spending having and hoarding though you were once that baby though you are still that world
1: Hmm. so a little story to tell you that i was reminded of recently because i was in the east coast um, teaching and they have fireflies there which i knew from my childhood but my daughter, growing up in California, had never seen fireflies, you know, one of the things I miss. And we went to live uh, on sabbatical years ago um, in Bali. We went to a village outside of Ubud and um, stayed in the house of a Balinese family. Um, and I remember the first night we got there after we'd been traveling in other parts of Indonesia and Thailand. And, I took my daughter into bed, she was six years old, and put the mosquito net around her and, I, and she snuggled in, fell asleep. And then I went out on the porch and I saw fireflies, and I thought, fantastic. And I got a jar, you know, how we do as kids, right? Even big kids. And I collected a bunch of fireflies in the jar. Then I went inside and I poked open her mosquito net, and I opened the jar and let all the fireflies <laughs> inside the mosquito net and then i woke her up i said caroline look there are fireflies here and inside her mosquito net were all these you know in the dark these fireflies going around um what kind of planet are we on that has little bugs with flashing lights you know that are completely innocuous And the chine in the night, I mean, this is a wild incarnation. It is. And part of the work of the poet is to say, here we are. You know, sun drapes a buttered scarf across your cheek, rose opens herself to your glance, the world nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. Mm -hmm. And so the end, although the Buddhist teachings have, as the first noble truth, the fact that the world has its sorrows and it has its... Racism and its war and its conflict and so forth. And it's about time we learn. I mean, kindergartners, we say, you know, use your words, right? Don't hit that person kid with a block. We actually teach them to use their words. I think it's time, like in Washington and London and wherever it happens to be, Moscow and Baghdad and so forth, that people learn somehow to do this that we as a species learn. Um, but the end of the path, the, The journey is really not the invitation um, of suffering, although we need to turn and face it and be honorable and honest about the troubles of humanity. But the point is to see them with wisdom, to quiet yourself, to quiet your mind, to open your heart so that there's some sense of compassion for us all, and to realize that there is another way, that we can live from a place of perspective and understanding and wisdom wherever we are, and that that wisdom is your birthright. It is who you really are. You, the Buddhist texts begin, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you are and carry this dignity and this wisdom um, and this compassion no matter what happens. And the words from the Buddha, live in joy in love even among those who hate. Live in joy and health even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fears and attachments. Know the sweet joy of living in the way." And so as you learn and cultivate the practices of mindfulness, loving kindness, compassion, it's for you, also happens to be for your family and all those people around you. They um, appreciate your practice. It's also really for the world for what it's time for us to manifest in all the ways that we do Um, and this liberation of the heart um, is your birthright it's possible for you Um, and you know it somewhere deep you know how you get caught and you also know that um, that freedom and love um, that we all long for is there to be found in you so I'm so glad we get to sit together and practice. I'm grateful for Spirit Rock and all the, you know, thousands of people who come. I I figured out we had an event in the beautiful retreat hall there, which will now be matched when I come back in a year for the, with the community hall. Um, And I figured out that there'd been 2.3 million hours of meditation that happened in that room. So if you believe in vibrations, it's got some really, um, but even coming once, even just coming to quiet yourself and listen and reflect, it's not to become a meditator, but it's to use the tools of meditation, again, to, to listen deeply, to remember who you are, and to remember that freedom that is your heart's birthright. So, Alison, thank you, dear. Thank this you. This is really a pleasure.
0: So
1: Her books, see how we almost fly, Desires, do, zoo the largest possible life. Mostly, I just wanna thank you all. It's, it's such an honor to be able to be here on Monday night with so many people and share both the stillness and the <coughs> poems and the language and good hearts.